Welcome to the Made for People podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me as my co-host on this series is Kirsten Mann. Kirsten spends a lot of her time with other product management executives, and she's taken the opportunity to interview them and bring to you the stories about how they're made for people, how the projects that they're working on are made for people, and how also the outcomes that they're creating are made for people. But enough of me, over to Kirsten. Mark, I am super excited. We've managed to track down Jim Simic. Now, Jim is the founder and chief strategist for Product Plan. Now, and anybody who is in the product industry knows this product, right? I guarantee. Jim, we are so excited. Can you kind of give us a bit of a background in terms of how this all happened for you, how you, how you co-founded um, Product yeah. Plan and your journey into product? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here, Kirsten and Mark, and uh, thank you for having me. And Product Plan is product roadmap software, and we started the company in 2013. And my co-founder and I got together and decided that we wanted to start a company before we knew what kind of product to build. And with my experience at other companies uh, with market validation, I previously was at a B2B software company called Appfolio, which is now a publicly traded company here in the United States. And before that, I would um, I was the first product manager and wrote the product requirements for GoToMeeting and uh, GoToMeeting oh. and GoToWebinar and, and <laughs> products that now compete with uh, Zoom. And to, um, full disclosure here, um, we're recording this on Zoom because we didn't want to have GoToMeeting because there might have been some issues there. Okay. <laughs> I won't take it personally. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of experience with market validation. So my co-founder and I, before we started Product Plan, um, talked about what we wanted to build in terms of the type of company, the kind of culture that we wanted, the size of the organization. Um, we knew that it was going to be SaaS. We knew that it was going to be software as a service, subscription-based, but we didn't know what. And so we set out to investigate different markets. And, uh, um, and after looking at several markets, we looked at which market we were most passionate about. And, um, and that was product management. And then we started talking with product managers to discover what their pain points were. And we initially went into it with an idea of developing some other kind of software. And when we proposed that software to the product managers, they said, that's a great idea, but our real problem is in communicating our product strategy and and building product roadmaps. So then we said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And we started validating that idea. And before we started coding, we had interviewed uh, 30 different product managers to understand deeply the pain that they were in um, with developing and communicating and prioritizing their product roadmap. And that's what we set out to build. And so on that journey, and Mark and I are very passionate about trying to um, get boards and the exec to understand the importance of being, you know, people-centred in terms of creating products and, and services. Mm-hmm. How did you, can you kind of talk a bit about the journey you had with creating um, a board and things to invest in an idea, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and an exec or an exec, when you kind of just had this idea, it was, you were kind of proving it's a bet. You don't know. How did that journey go? Yeah, and I've I've been on both sides, both as a a product manager and as a founder of a company, um, trying to 
uh, reduce risk and trying to convince stakeholders, whoever those stakeholders happen to be, whether they're executives um, or whether they're, um, you know, others, it could be investors, um, trying to convince them that this is the right strategy, that this product is right, or maybe this, this direction for the product or the feature is the right thing to build. And I've always believed that it starts with the problem, that you really want to deeply understand what the, the customer problem is, and then understand what the value is that you're bringing to the table. And the value can be uh, either a monetary value that you're bringing, maybe you're saving money or making money for your customer, um, but it can also be um, maybe improving their life experience. It, the value could be measured in a lot of different ways, but really understanding the potential value that your solution can bring. And the way that I found is the best way to convince stakeholders is by bringing evidence to the table. And the evidence can be in a lot of forms. It can be uh, qualitative information or it can be quantitative information. And I've, I've always found that the, the qualitative information, customer interviews, um, uh, d discussions with experts and industry leaders, that's really the most compelling information. Um, and so when I, when I try to convince um, a, a stakeholder, whether it's an executive or someone else about a product strategy, I bring to the table data. And that data can be quotes from customers. It can be recordings of things that they've said. Um, and those are always the most compelling ways to convince someone. When, when it's not you saying it, it's someone else's voice saying it. So, and I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you've found that yourself, Kirsten, but. Oh, I completely agree. And often and they can be quite frustrating. <laughs> You're like, hey, we, we've been talking about this. You know, so I think a lot of a lot of junior product managers, that's where they struggle because they're, they're trying to convince by just talking and showing this. And the best way, as you said, is let somebody else convince that you have solved their problem. Now, in, when we were talking just before we started recording, you mentioned that in industry we hear, like, what was it, five years ago, it was mobile first. And now it's, um, I think, it, well, we're through a phase of product first. I think now it's services first, right? That's the latest yeah. thing. But you actually take a different approach in terms of what you position. Do you want to talk yeah. to us about yeah. that? Yeah, and we could talk a little bit about what, what I mean when I talk about product first. Um, I just recently had a conversation with someone about product-led um, growth. And I think that that, so there are a lot of different, a uh, lot of different terms being thrown about now. And, and um, what I, when I'm talking about product first thinking, I'm thinking about it as a, an entrepreneur or a product manager who thinks that they have a great idea for a product. And, and then they try to find the fit for that. And in my experience, the, that is a recipe for failure. Um, because, or, or at a minimum, it's a recipe for um, uh, needing to pivot later because you didn't get that fit right. And, um, and so that's when I talk about a, a, a problem first. And so it, everything falls around the problem and deeply understanding those customer needs and the customer problem that you're solving and knowing that that the problem is big enough on the customer's priority list to solve. That's, I think, a really important aspect of it. 
And, um, and particularly for, for uh, software startups, um, I, uh, so many um, entrepreneurs and, and engineers, you know, they, they, they have a problem in their life um, that they've experienced and they say, I'm going to solve that. And they wind up solving the problem for themselves rather than for a market. And so, and so when I talk about product first, I actually talk about it in a, a somewhat negative connotation. Um, and that's different than um, thinking about product-led growth, which is letting your product, in a sense, sell itself. So those are two different concepts in my, in my, my thinking. And related to this is um, your, and we've seen this reflected in the product plan product, <laughs> <laughs> is um, the introduction of themes. And it, it's something that um, Bruce McCarthy, um, in his roadmapping book, which I actually, <laughs> here's a plug for Bruce, <laughs> fantastic Bible here, um, and really talking about the concept of themes and using that to um, frame the outcomes you're trying to drive with the product that you're producing. Mm-hmm. Have you found that this has really resonated with people in using your product as well? Absolutely. Um, and I recommend using themes on the product roadmap rather than these detailed feature lists. And so somebody, um, somebody who's not familiar with themes, let's have a talk about what's what's your definition when you talk about themes, yeah. what do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I like to think about it in terms of what your product is going to do for someone. Um, and so, you know, a theme for uh, a video conferencing solution might be deliver you know, higher definition, deliver higher definition video so that customers have a better experience, a more in, you know, more lifelike experience. That might be a theme. Now, the features that you deliver to support that, the platform improvements, the, you know, and and so on and so on, um, th- those, are, those are the features that kind of fall underneath the theme. And, um, and when, when product managers talk about themes um, and, and talk about their product and what they're going to be doing in themes, they're giving themselves some flexibility as to how they solve the problem. They're also giving their teams flexibility and autonomy about how they solve those problems. So when a product manager goes into it and says, you know, we're going to go into, we're going to create a solution that has this sort of resolution. And here are all of the features that we're going to have that, that when they do that, they're in a sense, they're locking themselves in. Um, they're, they're setting expectations that they may not be able to meet. Um, and so when I talk about themes, um, we're usually talking about high level, um, big picture concepts. You can talk about that maybe they're even beyond an epic. And so then what a product manager will do is they're talking to their stakeholders about these large themes that they're going to be doing over a long span of time, maybe a couple of quarters, for example. And then in in that, you might have epics that roll up into a theme. And in that, of course, then you then you start writing your user stories and those roll up into the epic. So that's that's what I that's what I think about um, when I when I think about themes. Um, And yeah, that definitely that definitely resonates. I think the days of product managers um, uh, uh, coming up with a list of 100 features as their product roadmap, I think those days are are becoming uh, numbered. Um, product managers are starting to talk about, you know, what are the goals that we're, that we're aspiring to? What are the, how are we going to measure uh, success? What are the outcomes for this particular theme that we're going to 
you know, that we're going to be working on. And so talking about it in broad strokes um, like that gives, as I said, the product manager more flexibility. It also reduces the, the, the misalignment of expectations within the organization. And, um, and, um, and it also uh, uh, makes it so that when the product manager uh, discovers that something that they've been working on is not going to get delivered, it allows some wiggle room there to, for, for reprioritizing. So after you get the estimation done, it allows for reprioritization. I'm, I'm really interested in, because I think we've seen in the last couple of months, an example of where a theme-based strategy actually won and some people who went feature-based strategies or plat platform-based strategies that they got caught yeah, where there was an opportunity. And the, and the three companies I want to focus on are Zoom, WhatsApp, and GoToMeeting. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if you go think about them, all, all of them had this theme, which was that they want to connect anyone, anywhere, anyhow. But the only one that actually could deliver that for the casual need that came up with uh, during COVID was Zoom. You know, for, for WhatsApp, you, the desktop app didn't actually connect because they'd made a product decision at some point that it, it had to hang off somebody's mobile or self-service. Then you had a go-to-meeting. They made that it had to fit into corporate plans and that they were more interested in enterprise sales and the casual was a bit complicated. And, and to me, that's a really interesting, you know, real-world example where Zoom had kept, you know, true to their theme which was anywhere, anyhow, anytime. And they allowed people to casually connect. Everybody could connect. There wasn't a platform play. There wasn't a commercialization play in place. And they wound up winning. But that need wasn't evident, you know, 12 months ago. Right. Now, all of a sudden, the, the need changed and they and they had some flexibility because they were theme-based rather than feature-based. And I think that's that's very interesting that, you know, we sometimes we talk about what the gains were in the market rather than what were the misses. And to me, I think there's somebody at WhatsApp who's now kicking themselves that they didn't make the desktop app allow for camera camera support. And yeah. Yeah, and that whole idea, it was mobile only, oh, the desktop, it really, and, and it kind of federates, but it doesn't. And that to me is a, a really important thing. If you were true to what the user's need was, you wouldn't have made the decisions that, that WhatsApp did. But if you were trying to actually be true to an internal need, which was a platform play, then you're going to make those sorts of decisions. So I, I really like the idea that themes can help protect people from being true to the person who's not in the room, which is the user. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that uh, your your go to meeting and Zoom example are great case studies um, at, from a number of different angles. Um, one one is that go to meeting was quite a while ago before video became uh, prevalent, right? And so they, in fact, the first version of GoToMeeting, there was no video, it was only screen sharing. And they introduced video later. And that was part of our market validation is that early on the video quality wasn't good enough so that people would take advantage of it. And so it was only after a certain amount of time that they introduced video and then eventually high definition video. Um, and Zoom, because they had the advantage of being a later, you know, being a later mover, they came in and did video first, mm. right? So the experience of GoToMeeting versus versus Zoom, two very different experiences. GoToMeeting starts with 
the expectation that you'll be screen sharing because one of the use cases is for sales demonstrations and, and so on. And <clears throat> Zoom, because of their video first nature, and they made a decision to go with free, a freemium model, mm. um, also set it up so that it can become a consumer product um, after the fact. So that, so that, you know, there was, there was some momentum pre COVID for free use of, of zoom. They just made it drop dead simple to get started and to use it. And it's video first, which is what people naturally gravitate to. And yeah. So I think that's, a very I'm going to show my age here, but I, but I remember very early on when Microsoft was starting to try to go get itself into the market and they were very much a feature-based company. There wasn't much experience with their products. But there was, I'd, I'd never heard of it, but apparently Kix was something that was very important. And every conversation would come up and we integrate with Kix and we integrate with Kix. I'm okay. going, who the hell are all these Kix customers? And it was like the 1% of 1% that they were trying to break into that market. But it became the narrative for all their other users was that Kix was important. Now, most people would never have heard of Kicks, but at a point in time, that was one of those tick boxes. And we're seeing the same thing there for Zoom, that Zoom's got a tick box, which is it hasn't got some military-grade security. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't deal in military secrets, so I don't need military-grade security. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's unsecure. And you're going, oh, it's pretty secure for the things I'm doing. And so that then you're getting this, again, you're getting the functionality tick box coming back in as driving the narrative rather than the theme of what it's all about. And that's got to go through the culture of organisations. But I want to come back a little bit to yeah, you. Actually, can I, can I pause you on that one, Mark? Because, yeah. Jim, something that you were saying earlier as well, which is really interesting relating to that, and for me it's a, that is actually a classic example of jobs to be done, right? Like... The job is the same and how the solution that people have decided to solve that job has changed, right? And Zoom has just come up with a better solution in the sense that they're all solving the problem of having um, interacting via visually, right, is, is essentially that problem that people wanted. But as you pointed out, Mark, the model um, was the thing, the barrier in terms of actually mm. purchasing that. And, Jim, it's something that you talked about with positioning, and I think a lot of product people forget that, you okay, you've got to solve the problem, but the problem extends across that experience and the human experience relates right from that initial at what's going to solve my need, but one of the key things is the buying aspect as well, right? How Are you going to pay for this to solve your need? And yeah. so it's a really interesting one. Like how did you, in your role, with um with go to me because that's Citrix, isn't it? Is the one? Was yeah, it the I was one? later acquired yeah. by LogMeIn. Um, yeah, and and so how I imagine that you were dealing with this problem right back then. That hey, there's this these consumers and things. Did you want to talk about what were some of the things that you kind of explored in terms of positioning? Was it just ultimately that you said, look, we're just going to make more money out of these enterprise customers. Let's focus on that. Because I can't imagine it wasn't a problem that just came up recently. No. And in fact, when uh, when we did the validation for GoToMeeting and, and went to market, there were 70 other online meeting providers. Um, and in all different permutations. And at the time, WebEx was the, the leader. And, and so we went, we went through a process and said, how do we want to, how do we want to position ourselves? And I completely agree with you, Kirsten, that, um, that it is not only about the product, um, that the product isn't 
simply the user interface. Um, it is the entire experience. And that's why I, I believed at the time and um, uh, that pricing could be a potential differentiator, that pricing and the way that we delivered that, that, that product um, uh, is almost like a feature of, of the product. And, and so that's when we came up with, at the time, a, a fairly innovative concept, which is the all-you-can-use model. So you buy a single seat, and then you can invite up to 10 people to participate in your meeting, which at the time was revolutionary. And now it's, I think that sort of model is, is fairly standard. But what we found is that it enabled this viral spread within the organization. And so that, that was that's product-led growth, right? Yeah. So someone gets exposed to the product. Someone says, I really like that. I had a great experience and I'm going to purchase that for, for myself so I can have meetings too. And the decision was made very early on not to have a free, we had a free trial, but to not have a freemium model um, because the, the customer at the time was more of a corporate customer. And the use case at the time was not people, you know, talking and having happy hours with their, their aunt in, in a different <laughs> city. It was, it was salespeople who were already spending, you know, a lot of money to be traveling who could then be more efficient by do, conducting online meetings. So that was the, that was the use case. And, and, and we solved that use case very well. Now, the market, of course, changed and evolved and, and you know, years on, you know, COVID hit and, and the use case changes. And, um, and that's, that's something for, I think, product managers to be aware of is that um, it's wonderful to get to market, right, with, with a very limited feature set with something that is a delightful experience for customers um, and to hit the right target. You don't want to try to solve every problem for everyone, but hit a very narrow target and get to market quickly. And that's exactly what we did later with product plan. Um, and, and then you need to be, be very aware of what the market dynamics are, what the mega trends are, the fact that bandwidth continues to, to, you know, to improve everywhere, the fact, the fact that video quality continues to improve, improve. That is something that, that product managers you know, in, the, in the online meeting space need to be aware of. What you also touched on there, Jim, is, and again, it's another fascinating thing with product, right, where we see it's an example for me of the Cato model. You've gone and done something that's revolutionary or really, as you said, delighted customers. Yes. Then it becomes the norm, right? Everybody starts, because you've nailed it, everybody starts doing it and replicating. Yes. And so to get that product growth, the next wave becomes really challenging because everybody's like, hey, we did this thing, we're innovative, aren't we fantastic? And then everybody else is doing it. Uh-oh, okay, what do we do next? And uh-huh. how have you found that with product plan? Because you're now, what I'd say, in a more mature phase with your product. Mm-hmm. How are you innovating and getting, you know, the you know, the next line on that Cato curve. That's a, that's a great, that's a great uh, question. Um, So for those that aren't familiar with the Cato model, it's this idea that you have um, what you might call baseline features in your product. And these are features that you, your product has to have in order to be competitive. Um, And, you know, for, for example, in our market, you know, you need somewhere to put ideas, right? You need to be able to to plug in an idea somewhere. That might be a baseline, uh, uh, feature. Um, then there are what, what they call delighter features. And these are features that customers don't even expect. And, and these are features in, in the go-to meeting days. It was 
This is fast to install. It's the easiest to use. And I push a big play button to start sharing my screen. And that was like, wow, what an experience, <laughs> right? And in, in our world, in the product plan world, because we're one of the first to market, we came up with this innovative drag and drop ability to create a roadmap. So you literally could start, you can start with a blank canvas, blank roadmap, and just start adding these items to your roadmap in beautiful colors. And so we made that drop dead simple. That drag and drop was drop dead simple. So just pick it up, drag it and drop it. And then you're in the meeting and someone says, you know, that's not Q2, let's move that to Q3. And then you just pick it up and drag and drop it. And that at the time, and somewhat still is, that's a very innovative delighter type feature. Now there are other products out there that have this drag and drop capability out there. And so we need to continue to innovate and to think about the problems that we can solve for customers um, that, that keep us ahead. And so we have a number of other features that, um, that continue to differentiate us that will continue, you know, continue working on and, and keep us ahead of the curve. But I think that's a really important concept that you're bringing up is that you might get to market with something that is your minimum viable product and maybe has some delighter features in there and customers are wowed, but you have to stay on top of it um, in, order to, in order to remain competitive. Jim, I'm, I'm really interested in that, uh, in, in how you manage that in a cycle because we know that when people are dissatisfied, they have a shopping list of all of the things that they're dissatisfied with. But when they're satisfied, you can, satisfaction is a binary state. You're either satisfied or you're not. Nobody's twice satisfied. When you ask people about what they're satisfied about, they can't answer that. They're dissatisfied. Oh, I'm happy. I'm in bliss. But when you're dissatisfied, it's like I can give you everything that's wrong. So, right. so we're going through and we're doing an epic and there's 10 delight points in the epic. Do I release them all at the same time or do I stagger them out so that I'm giving constant delight to people? How yeah. do you manage that? You know, that that because to me that's wasted opportunity. You know, if you come out and you've and you've given 10 units of delight, but the person is only satisfied once, you've actually missed some of your product rollout and delight strategy there. What have you yeah, got on the table that handles that? Yeah, that's a conundrum for product managers everywhere. And we run into that today in my company where um, there are things that they might be little sticky points in the, in the product and we can continue to refine those and continue to improve customer delight. Um, but if we spend all of our time on that, we might be missing the forest for the trees, right? Mm -hmm. We might be, there might be some other innovative feature that we could be working on that customers don't even know they're not, they, they don't even know about it, so they can't be dissatisfied with it, right? That we could be working on that would move us ahead towards our, towards our mission, right? So we want to, so our, you know, our goal is to, um, is to be the single source of truth for all roadmap information in, our, in an organization. That's our, that's, our, that's our mission, to be this um, platform for that information. And when we see product managers using product plan and still using some spreadsheets, we know that we have some work to do. And so that, that's really the, the mission that we're on. Now we can continue to refine and iterate and you know, resolve sticky points and you know, kind of soften those rough edges right in the customer experience, which we do. But if we allocated all of our time to that, we might be missing out on other opportunities to, to meet our mission. Yeah, and I, and I think that's actually about having horizon teams, isn't it? It's uh, who's setting the, who's got the near horizon, who's got the mid horizon, who's over the horizon and working on things and making them work together. Kirsten, I, I interrupted you. 
No, I was just going to say, so it was a really interesting point that you raised, Mark, because, you know, we're all the same, aren't we? Not, right? So how do you have, you need a number of delighters because even if you think you've got one, that only suits one person, right, or X number of people, and you've got all of these other people who are like, well, that didn't delight me at all. Like, what have you got for me? So it's a really interesting balance there, isn't it, of how do you actually get delight across your customer base versus thinking this is this is the one that's going to do this thing. because yeah we as humans we're very um individually wired to delight <laughs> exactly and mark brought up this you know delighter uh points concept and that's an interesting one De- delighter points according to according to whom and and what what segment are we delighting and you know and what part of the experience is that taking place in so you know i guess in my my question rhetorical question is you know, according to whose metric, right? So the product managers. Music industry had people who were developing skills on this and they were known as A&R people. And the artists and repertoire. So what they were meant to do was help the artist to become less of a drug addict, more of a musician, and that they were trying to turn around and make sure that the repertoire that they had had some narrative to it. So they were the ones outsourcing songs and saying, do you, do you want to play this? Or do you, what do you think about a collaboration here? And the music industry understood that there was actually a personality that, that came in from, from that product being the artist and, and how do they go develop it. And they spent a lot of time developing. And there were some people who were known as absolute, the go-to A&R person. There are other people who were junk at it. And so I think it's important that we work out, you know, we know personas are, could you imagine a delighted list where you tick one one for each persona? You know, that's like a committee and that'd be a terrible release. But I go think back to, you know, some albums from bands and I'm, I'm gonna, I'll use you two as an example. They come out with a new album and when you hear it for the first time, you think, oh, that's so different. And you listen to it five years later and you say, no, that's exactly you two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got you've got this homogenization that happens when you're familiar with it. When it's new, it feels like it grinds. We, we have expertise in the world of people who make breakthrough content, particularly in the entertainment and arts world. How much are we bringing them into product teams? To They probably are messy people who are actually talk in intangible terms. But, you know, that's how you come up with the lighter points is probably through wisdom and experience. I don't think it's a par- parameter that you dial in. Yeah, and I also believe that um, we, we think we might know how much it's going to satisfy customers and we release it and it doesn't move the needle. Um, or, or we release something and say, wow, that really moved the needle for us. And, um, and so I, a, a point that I would want to emphasize to the audience is that, that these experiments or these features, the, the delight that you're creating isn't a one-time shot. And I think, Kirsten, that's to your point, that, that what you need to be doing is, is doing this a lot because some are going to be hits and some are going to be misses and you don't know which one they're going to be. And, and so I've, I've had an interesting conversation with uh, Mario Puccini at, um, at PepsiCo and we were talking about how do you measure the delta of how you accelerate the organisation. We, we can always measure losses, but we, it's difficult for us to measure how we accelerate. 
And I'm wondering in, you know, products like what your uh, product plan there, what's the opportunity to show the executive how, how smart or how much further you've been able to get over a period of time? They're challenges that I think that we need to actually overcome because, again, they're lost gains that we're not getting recognition for. And that to me is where the expertise of being an expert product manager is that you took the company further and faster into the future. You need to be recognised for that. Is there anything on the table that you've got there or is that a challenge yet to be yet to be solved? Yeah. Well, that continues to be a challenge because the there's, there's a real tendency of teams to measure performance by the number of features that you're releasing, mm-hmm. right? By executing on, on the roadmap and that's the measure of success. And, and that's the, the feature factory that, that people talk about. And that's not where we wanna be. We wanna be in a place where um, we're able to talk with stakeholders and show them the roadmap and say, we believe that if we achieve this, that we're able to you know, move the needle in, in these different metrics areas. And, um, and, th- and then it gets fuzzy. And we can sh- certainly show progress. And with product plan, we integrate with Jira, Azure DevOps, and other, other underlying project management systems so that we're able to roll up the progress as the, as the stories are completed. We roll up that, that progress into product plan so that the executives and other stakeholders can see the big picture about how far are we along. But that's not the measure of success. Right. When you get to 100 percent, that's not the measure. And so I think that's an ongoing conversation that the product manager needs to be having with stakeholders that simply because we're checking the boxes here and you can see that the you know, we're, we're moving from, you know, 60, 70 to 100 percent. Right. That's not necessarily the measure of success. It's whether we're achieving these, you know, these goals that we've set for the organization, these long term goals that and making progress on those and measuring those. That's the that's success. In terms of what Jim just was speaking through then, and I'm actually not sure if this feature is in product plan. So here's one for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, here's a customer problem. (laughs) Um, What you talked about there and and with Mark's question, to me, it's a summary of a learning organisation. Right. And how have you actually, because everybody, oh, we've come up with this great idea and off we go and and weren't we correct? And no, right. It just doesn't work that way. And I think, unfortunately, that's how execs are wired, right? We're wired to have the answer and off we go. And this is, you know, how much we're going to make from this and what's what's the return and all the rest of it. But what's really interesting then, what you outlined is, the learning that's happened as you've gone through that product journey, because if it, if it's a good product manager running this, they would be taking that pivoting saying, right, okay, that hasn't worked. We've got to, we've got to pivot towards this direction. I think to Mark's point, if you could kind of capture the learning that happened and the change and what happened through that process, that could be valuable for people. Cause it's like, you know what, we actually, Went down this curve, went down this path, had to deviate this time because of these reasons. Capturing that after the fact, people forget. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it worked. <laughs> Move on. What's next? Kind of thing. And they don't capture the story and the journey that led to that outcome. 
And it, I think teams really struggle with the decision-making capture part. You know, wh- why did we do that again? And what, what led us to here? It's kind of everybody gets to that supposed finish line, as you said, Jim, and sometimes that's a release or sometimes it, it, you hope it's actually that they've realised they've solved the problem and then they move on. Right? But yeah, capturing the learning I think is key in terms of if you really want to be able to show the difference that um, being people-centred and going down this journey made. Yeah, I completely agree with you that um, that the release is really the start of the learning. Um, uh, in product plan, we just released a feature recently um, that allows um, uh, new people who are trying product plan to independently create additional trials for their team. So we call that the team trials feature. And we had some hypotheses about what would happen when we did that. And um, we're meeting regularly on this and we're measuring success after the feature is released. Um, today, we just got some anecdotal information from um, some of our uh, our internal um, you know, product specialists to say, what is the feedback that you're hearing from customers and, and, and people you're working with on that feature? And, and so it's, it's fuzzy, um, but, we, um, but, but that sort of knowledge needs to be talked about um, and then measured so that, you know, the next time we want to do something like that, we have something to measure it against. Um, I'm a big fan of, of trying to describe the success criteria before you start building. Um, and when I was at Appfolio, which was um, uh, software for small and mid-sized businesses, so it was enterprise for the SMB, um, uh, we introduced new features regularly, and we always talked about, you know, how is this specifically going to move the needle? Let's put the formula together about what we think the adoption is going to be of, of this particular feature or value-added service. Um, and then what is that going to do for us? And then we would come back and we would do retrospectives on that and say, okay, next time around, we're learning. And, and I think that sort of knowledge, that community knowledge, um, and I guess attitude is a really important thing for product teams to adopt, in, in my opinion. Mm. And I know with um, uh, the Driven by Design Award programs, we're, we're in the middle of a reframing roadmap that we've got out there because we found that our users actually didn't understand who they were themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and what it came down to was if you're involved with award programs, you're actually the award manager, but there's also the, is the project sponsor, the executives who are involved with the project. So they've got an interest, but it's actually our platform services award managers the outcome, the celebration happens for the executives and the teams that are involved, but our platform needs to deal with award managers. They don't know their award managers. So it's like, how do we go and turn them into a, into a user group? And that takes a lot of time because we have to actually get in their own imagination that they're award managers. We need to help them understand what an award manager does. And so it's not like we're actually solving a need, we're actually creating a need here. And that was based on the fact that we were picking up all these signals from everybody, but they didn't actually know who they were and they didn't know what their need was. So then synthesising that together and then putting that into a product journey, turning around and actually working out what that journey map is, what does that turn out as a rollout. I think your need there, Mark, that you identified was people didn't know how to celebrate the success of what they'd done. 
There's two. So they didn't know how to celebrate the success was one. So when they won an award, they didn't know what to do. But then there were all these people who were involved with the awards entries and the nomination process who didn't understand the cycle that was involved with that. So we'd find that the most junior person who was a casual for one day was putting an awards nomination, but there were six months of follow-up emails and, you know, informing people that they'd won and we were losing them in the cycle. So we had to then bring in this whole orchestration that you're starting something that has a journey. And well, that- I, I actually meant your higher level need was that people were doing these amazing design projects around the world and not celebrating it. You know, and not sharing it, and you kind of tapped into that. That was the interesting aspect. Yeah, and 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 so I suppose it's you know taking past projects and turning them into future reputation. We know that's what we do with awards, and that's such a delightful thing to do. But then you go, well, now that you've got that recognition, how do you amplify it? And the other one is, how do you manage it yourselves through the cycle there? And so as we got into this, we just kept on realizing we'd solved one problem, but there were so many more to go get to. And they weren't framed. So, and I think then coming from a themes perspective, we knew what the theme was. We then had to work out how do you go put that into an evolving journey for somebody? How do you go and create that framing for them? And that isn't the type of thing that you deal with in an epic. You know, that's actually thinking of an entire life cycle of, uh, of a project here. It's really difficult to work out. And so if I've got somebody who I'm talking to who's all about themes, I'm just like fanboy, 100% here. You're my brother, Jim. I think also the thing with Jim that's really interesting, and so this is a this would be one, Jim, where, you know, you're obviously a product veteran and, and know the journey that product managers and the challenges that they face, right? I'm interested for your product managers because in a sense, you're an educated, you're a dangerous executive, right? <laughs> you know <laughs> the, how, to, how to potentially tackle product and create products. So how do you deal with, because you would be doing exactly what other um, product managers experience where you go to the exec and you say, right, this is what we're going to do. And you're like, hmm, really? <laughs> okay. How do you deal with the, because this is also, as I said earlier, what Mark and I are trying to do is, create a bit of the at the education at the board and exec level of how do you enable organizations teams to create products and services that are human-centered and trust them to do that versus having everything you know because we we talked about that we're making bets here right these people essentially we're all guessing it's just you've got better educated guesses sometimes but in that exec role how do you deal with that where you're sitting back you're listening to this feature being pitched or whatever it is and thinking at the back of your mind you know I think I could solve this better or hey hold on they should be doing it this way how do you change your thinking around that yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. And I think you you nailed it with the word trust. Um, so the first thing is we hire people that we trust. We hire creative people that um, that that think like my my co-founder and I think, which is being very customer centric, um, um, being very much focused on that user experience. Um, and so I think that's the and and then we've built a culture of 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 trust, um, of allowing people autonomy to make decisions. So I, I think that's part of it. It's built into the culture. And I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say, you know, there are some times when I say, mm, I'm not sure if I would do it that way. Um, but that's where you, that's where you trust. And, um, and then the other thing is as a, as a, as a founder, um, you, 
you, there are times when you, you have to step back, um, when you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to let the team do what they, what they do. There was a time when, when I was helping run the sales team. Right. And, and I, and I, there's a certain, there's only a certain extent of my skills for that. Right. And so I need to, I know then now I need to hire, we need to hire people that are much more talented than I am in that area. Um, there, I, I need to hire people that are much more talented in product, in UX and, and so on, right? Because they, there's only a certain extent of my my abilities. And so that's uh, really interesting you move about. So you touched on a couple of aspects there that what are the other things like? I'd, I'd want to tease this out a bit because I think it's really important for people to kind of understand those elements of, you said trust was one, but what gives you that trust is there interest in customers, that they're, they're customer focused. What other things build that trust for you that you think, okay, this person is on the right path and I, and I can take a step back here? Yeah, I, there, there's a certain um, uh, culture that we've, cr- that we've created at Product Plan. Um, we hire people that ha- are slightly entrepreneurial um, and uh, people that have worked in startups before. Um, so there's a certain I guess, uh, attitude and bent um, with people that have worked in an environment like that because we're dealing in uncertainty. Any product team is dealing in uncertainty. And so the ability to deal with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important characteristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then people that have done it before. So, you know, when, one of the first things that Greg and I um, did when we when we started the company is we said, we're going to we're going to work with people that we truly enjoy working with. We we're because we're a little bit mature and we've had prior successes. Um, we had the luxury of of being able to say, you know, we, we can choose who we work with and we want to work with, well, not only people that maybe we've worked with in, in previous companies, but, but people that we really enjoy um, working with. We have the same sort of, I, I guess, philosophy about life. Balance in life is very important to us, for example. Um, and I think all of that has served us really well. It's served us well from a product perspective, from an employee perspective. And then now in this time of distance and, and distributed work, I think it's served us really well. And so people can be more autonomous. We're, we're not sitting there checking to make sure that people are working, you know, they're 40 hours a week or whatever it is, right? We have, there's a lot of trust that we've, we've built up. And we also have a culture where people can speak up and not be afraid that that's going to be, that that's going to be frowned upon. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've, that's, that's reflected in the managers that we're hiring um, uh, for the people. We, we want a, a culture of um, being able to have those, those uncomfortable conversations with people and not, and not have people hide uh, around that. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. Um, so, Jim, I'm interested yeah. with, uh, so you're, you're establishing a high trust environment there. Mm-hmm. And we know if you look at networking theory, that high trust applications are vulnerable to some of the biggest collapses because the, the trust that exists between them you know, something, if it gets behind the firewall, it, it then pervades everything. The same thing happens in corporations where you wind up with a high trust organisation when a, when a problem comes in and trust has been broken, that that then can actually pollute the entire organisation. Have you worked out how to go and actually deal in a high trust environment when some of those low trust or broken trust moments happen? Yeah. Well, we, we've recently... Um, 
within the last couple of weeks with all of the um, social unrest um, and you know the 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 protests that are happening, um, we decided to um, have our employees um, volunteer to participate in a task force that will help guide the management team mm-hmm. um, with our with our our actions um, and and so it was voluntary. Um, and we set up, a, I think we have six or seven people on this, this task force now. And, and they have a, it's, it's not even a specific mandate. Um, it's fairly broad about what, what the scope is for them making recommendations um, to us as an organization about how, what our diversity practices are, for example. Um, what we do from a community standpoint and how we represent ourselves from a community standpoint. And so there are all these different these different areas. And, and I think um, that's just an example of how we've um, set ourselves up so that when there might be some, you know, maybe there there is an issue that comes up where people feel like there's there's the trust was broken. Um, that we're set up that we have the 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 I guess the infrastructure within the organization so that it's it, that we can work through that. Um, and so I think that's I think that's all really important. And I'm, I'm fortunate that we're doing this at the at this early stage of the organization. And and I know that we've been um, I mentioned earlier that the company's been around since 2013. I still believe we're at really early stage for for our our opportunity. Um, and um, and so you know, product roadmap software and, and prioritization and all of this is, a, I think, a huge opportunity. And as we all know, product management and UX, uh, this is, these, these are the jobs of the future. And, um, and so I feel like we, um, we, we almost, in a sense, have a responsibility for education and kind of setting an example for, um, uh, for, this, um, for this, these occupations. Well, in, in talking about that whole um, people who get it right, right, and the jobs of the future and things like that, what what company do you think, and thinking about recent experiences and products that you've seen, what company do you think has really mailed their products and their end-to-end experience? And you can't use Airbnb, you can't use um, Apple, <laughs> um, yeah. we, we've talked about Zoom. So, yeah, what, what company have you seen that you think has really, wow, that is they have really thought about this end-to-end experience for customers. Yeah, um, I'm a I'm a really big music fan, and um, I enjoy I enjoy music. Um, I'm a fan of a local company in Santa Barbara called Sonos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Sonos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and um, they've they've done it really well. Um, they've they've merged together the the design for both hardware and software and melded them seamlessly. And they've also created an environment so they integrate well with other products that I use, for example, Spotify, um, which is, um, uh, and so these these companies are, um, uh, I think are really good examples of um, companies that have nailed this this experience. And, and I wouldn't say that I, I'm, 100 percent you know 100 satisfied there are little you know little hiccups that might happen where i say oh but overall my life has improved because of the pro- those products and because of sonos um and so i and so those are pro and that that's kind of a unique world to be able to to successfully um create an experience it's both a software experience and a hardware experience um it's, it's kind of a special thing. Yeah, that's a hard. That's a hard path to go down. 
if you're listening to this, who I know had a lot to play in this role, <laughs> big props to you. <laughs> but, but, but I want to actually say you brought up Sonos. I want to go in there because like, they've done something amazing. Hardware is hard. You know, like that's that's it. They've also done the software thing. But if you if you go to your life coach and you're having your session, they'll, they'll ask you a question: What are your tolerations? And to me, there's this amazing toleration with Sonos, which is they okay, they've worked out how to use my Spotify account, but I can't use my Sonos speakers as a device. I've got to be going through their app. And that to me is just so frustrating. You know, I want to be able to, like I can with my Chromecast, how I can punch through my this the the media I'm consuming, I want to punch through to my Sonos speakers. That yeah. they haven't got over that barrier. That's like their Rubicon, they haven't mm-hmm. crossed yet. And so that makes me... That was probably a product decision, Mark, in the sense of we want to keep people within our ecosystem. I'm going back to... What was coming out and not realising the frustration they were going to be causing. Exactly. And that feels to me like that WhatsApp decision, which is it's a platform play, and the platform play is then creating a toleration, which um, I'd have to say Sonos are both in my love camp and hate camp for that very reason. And, and so that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's a thinking and Amazon and how many people have made exactly the same decision, right? Like we will keep you within this ecosystem and you'll do, not realising that if you could do everything, you're going to get even more love and adoption across this because they're just totally reliant on this piece of hardware. You know, that's yeah. I'm sure it was. It is a pro. These are all product decisions, and this is a a fascinating conversation. And and I would argue that if Sonos tried to do it all, that um, it wouldn't be the same experience, and it would be this watered down, um, lackluster (laughs) product experience that we probably wouldn't be talking about. Um, But because they've done certain things really well. Um, and uniquely, I, you know, I'm a fan, despite the fact that I can't, you know, do certain things like, like what you were talking about, Mark. We're never satisfied as humans. (laughs) I I need to come clear, full product disclosure. I'm not a member of the Apple ecosystem. Okay. (laughs) So then that, that puts me in the, I'm not prepared to set settle for a boundary. If I can see that there's a possibility, I'll go out and and cause myself some day-to-day pain because I want that unlimited opportunity there and they are platform and product plans you know it's like you either want to fit into our world our walled garden and in our ecosystem or you're a maverick that goes out there i'm one of those troubled mavericks that picks over the fence picks up some of the product features but then decides he wants to go and do his own thing that makes me a product manager's delight because i mean that they're in a job for the future yeah <laughs> or an argument to become a, you're never satisfied <laughs> i don't want this to become an ad for apple or sonos or or these products but i i just had an experience just a few days ago with the new um uh, airpod pros and I, I don't know if either of you own these but it came in the box i ordered it from amazon came in the box i opened it up as soon as i opened this lid my phone lit up and said do you want to connect and it was this seamless, flawless experience that I have no doubt they spent how many sprints <laughs> on that experience, right? Like how, what, what sort of resources were expended to create that, re- that, that experience? Just me opening the lid and it recognizing it and saying, oh, Jim's AirPod, bros, do you want to, you want to connect? Yeah. Yes. And it's done. And, and you've got to go think operating system, like, you know, how many 
quarters ago, did they put that hook into the OS so that then the phone would be ready when the product, like your mind just go, and then you're going to think, okay, now we've got to think of a security model in the operating system to allow that federation to take place. This was planned years ago. And finally, somebody saying that little feature that I've been after has come to light. And there's somebody got to light. And these things take time. That's what I mean. Hardware is hard. It is really hard. It's really hard. But you, you, they're the things that you remember too, right? I love that example, Jim. And in one of your examples with GoTo, I still remember the time I was on a, a meeting and, and I'd connected via home or something via the internet and I had to go to my car. And so the internet had obviously switched and I was on mobile data versus Wi-Fi at home. And this thing came up, said, your internet's unstable. Do you want to go and come in by a phone? I'm in a car. I'm thinking, oh gosh, okay, I need to pull over to do all of this. And I thought I'll just, and they said, do you want us to, I think was the message. Pressed it automatically dialed. I'm hearing the did, 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 all the codes entered automatically. I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness. They had somebody design this experience because, and thinking of my scenario. And it was one of those moments that stick with you. And I think that's what we really need as product and design people. What are the moments we're creating in people's lives that they'll, when they're in a conversation, they're going to pick up the case and talk about with somebody else, you know, because they're fantastic. They're the testimonials that people need to be sharing. So how do you get product moments might be the, <laughs> the thing that you start bringing through product plan. <laughs> Where are yeah. your product moments? I think I'm going to take that uh, that theme of moments and try to wrap this call up because, Jim, you've been fantastic. Oh, we could just, oh, can I ask what? Oh, okay, one okay. more. Our last moment in the, in the last career moments. We're, we're all about... Uh, Mark and I are on this campaign about creating a better future, right? And Mark's been a huge champion of this for the last 20 years, really, that we've known each other. But it's what what is product plan and yourself doing to contribute to a better future? Like what legacy do you hope that you'd leave for people? It's a big question. That is a big question. And I I love that question. Um, uh, At every company that I've been a part of, including product plan, there have been customers whose lives in some small way are better. So go to meeting, right? Uh, Someone is able to not travel for work and stay home for their kid's soccer game Mm -hmm. because of the work that we did there. Um, At Appfolio, where one of their products was property management software, uh, managing apartments, we were told, and I heard this firsthand, how they were able to go on vacation during the first week of the month for the first time ever because of our electronic payment system to collect rent online. Right. So I'm changing people's, we're helping to change people's lives and the companies, I I think about this with product plan in more of a, a meta sense. We have customers, we have thousands of customers all over the world using product plan to help plan their future products. And those products are probably changing people's lives. We have, in addition to software companies, we have financial services companies. We also have nonprofits. So we have we have people who are actually in the fight to, for COVID, against COVID, using product plan um, to plan it, to plan out initiatives. And so in a small way, we're contributing to, to that. And I'm very proud of, I'm very proud of that legacy. 
Well, I think I think you're just helping people get to a better future faster, and you know, and that to me, that to me is awesome that you're going to do that. I'm going to wrap this up. We've been going for about an hour, guys. Like this is this is. I think there are a lot of I know. I just want to actually finish the record and then talk for about ten hours with you, Jim. I'm having so much fun here. This has been great. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, and we look forward to seeing how more delight comes out from Product Plan in the future. Thank you both very much. It was great.